Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Christine Van Dyne, the CCF's litigation director. And I'm Joanna Barron, executive director of the CCF. In today's episode, we'll tell you about the thought-provoking speech that Supreme Court Justice Malcolm Rowe gave at the Running Need Society's annual conference this weekend. I'll walk you through a Supreme Court decision that found Ontario Premier Doug Ford was entitled to keep his ministerial mandate letter secret. And we'll share our bad legal takes of the week, where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that didn't quite land. But first, I'm going to tell you about a senior Montreal police officer who believes he was demoted for privately donating $20 to the Freedom Convoy. The three of us, uh, we've spent the last couple weeks fielding dozens of media requests after our victory against Justin Trudeau's unlawful invocation of the Emergency Act. And one of the questions that keeps coming up for us is, can people who were impacted by this decision in some way sue for damages or otherwise otherwise sue and the answer to that question is you know sorry consult your own lawyer it's going to depend on your own particular situation there are also limitation periods uh, involved here so if it's something you're thinking about you'd want to move sooner than later but for people who already have litigation underway the more i think about it the more i think it's possible that this ruling could at least in some small ways help help their cases, especially if they weren't involved in the activity that the judge found was unlawful, like, you know, actually blockading the streets. And one case where I think Justice Mosley's ruling might have a positive impact like this is this case of Patrick Lavallee, who is a a Montreal police officer. And this story was recently brought to our attention by a donor from Quebec. And it's, it's really interesting that it hasn't been covered much outside the province because it's kind of a big deal there. So Mr. Lavallee was, he's, he's a well-known Montreal police officer. And this is because he was perhaps the first openly gay officer to really climb up the ranks of the Montreal police. And uh, he also ran recently to be chief of the police and he wasn't successful in that, but he's fairly well-known from that run. And according to Le Devoir, in early January, 2022, Lavallee got promoted to head of the Integrity and External Services Division. And not not long after that, he anonymously gave a $20 donation to the Freedom Convoy through the fundraising website GiveSendGo. So GiveSendGo, you might recall, was the second website that the Freedom Convoy organizers were using to try and raise money. Uh, this was money to you know rent ho- rent out hotels and also to you know buy fuel for the trucks which were uh, parked in downtown Ottawa. Give Send Go was the second website that raised money, and Ontario actually went to court and successfully froze those funds. Uh, that didn't stop uh, hackers, far left hackers, frankly, from stealing the names, email addresses, and uh, other information from the people who had donated to give send go and they put this in a spreadsheet it was it was posted online i remember the toronto star was like doing investigative stories into who are these people who were donating to this convoy engaged in you know wrong think and supporting these terrible people and uh Lavallee, when he made his donation he didn't use his real name um but he did use an email address which was policier at me.com And this was recognized when Montreal police decided to try and find out if any of their officers were on the donor list as, uh, you know, probably a a police officer from Quebec. And uh, they figured out it was him. He admitted to this $20 donation and that led to the demotion or so it seems at least that's what the timing would suggest. And Lavallee sees this as constructive dismissal, which is in layman terms, where your employer, you know, treats you really badly to try and get you to quit because it's better for them if you quit than if they have to dismiss you because if they dismiss you, they're going to have to pay you out. And so late last year, a labor tribunal found that Lavallee was technically management. And so he had to, you know, fight this in superior court. And so in the meantime, he continues to fight, but it looks like his career has at least been tarnished by 
this whole media scandal and emotion for a $20 donation. And Lavalier is not the only one who's been going through this. There was a police officer in Windsor, Ontario named Michael Briscoe, and he was found guilty of discreditable conduct last year and ordered to forfeit 80 hours of pay after he privately donated $50 to the Freedom Convoy. Um, I, I believe he's appealing that uh, at the moment. And, uh, you know, Lavalier's situation also got me thinking about this other case, Jonker and West Lincoln, which is a case where this municipality, West Lincoln, punished Jonker under what else? A municipal code of conduct for having attended the Freedom Convoy protest. And, uh, you know, last year's a Superior Court agreed with the municipality that it was not open to the Integrity Commission to conclude that this protest was legal after the February 14th invocation of the Emergencies Act. Uh, but, but the court said they would leave it open to a future day to determine at what point this protest ceased to be legal. Reading between the lines, Justice Mosley's decision suggests that the protest was in some manifestations lawful, but in others unlawful. So you might be able to make a case that donating to the Freedom Convoy was not supporting illegal activity. On the other hand, he does say, quote, gatherings that employ physical force in the form of enduring or attractable occupations of public space that block local residents' ability to carry out their functions of their daily lives in order to compel agreement with an objective are not constitutionally protected. And so it's kind of hard to say uh, whether or not this EA decision will really impact these employment cases or similar cases or not. And so if people are interested in, in, um, in that question, they should probably just consult their own lawyers. But I, I think it, if anything, I think it probably does help this EA decision. So Joanna and Christine, any, any thoughts on this case? Maybe Joanna, you want to go first or? Well, I think one clear takeaway from the decision is that it's completely inappropriate to paint with a broad brush the whole convoy movement as unlawful. And I certainly think any type of, you know, employment consequences for giving $20. I mean, of course, this is not a constitutional issue. It's an employer employment uh, issue. Um, but that's like highly sus, right? Like it's really remote to me. Like I find it an absurdity to say, but like, by giving, donating $20, you're like, contributing or supporting an illegal blockade. Um, and I think, uh, you know, cooler heads have prevailed about this whole matter and uh, everybody went a little crazy. And I do think if there's one sort of like, there's a useful exercise in Justice Mosley's decision of being very clear that like, yes, you know, there was unlawful conduct, but no, that does not mean that everybody sh who showed up with a placard who was frustrated about mandates was gearing up to stage a coup. So I find this story uh, shocking and it should be getting more national uh, national attention. Um, so we'll be watching it to see what happens. What do you think, Christine? Yeah, I think that that's the right take. So obviously management has pretty strong powers to discipline employees uh, and things that employees do outside of work that implicate the credibility of the employer can result in discipline. So I think, you know, if you're, you know, pay, giving money to a protest that is, um, all, it, all it's doing is, is uh, having a blockade. I, I think that there could be potential for discipline. Um, but here, you know, he gave $20 and the protest entailed a lot of things that were illegal, but a lot of things that were not illegal. Uh, and that's part of the, the issue that came out of the Emergencies Act uh, decision is that you can't characterize this as a wholly illegal protest. I mean, part of the problem with the invocation of the Emergencies Act is that it prevented people from peacefully assembling on Parliament Hill with signs. Um I mean, how how is the employer going to say what um, Mr. What's his name? Lavalie wanted his money to go towards. Did he want it to go towards paying for coffees for someone peacefully standing on a sign or did he want it to go towards uh, a continued use of of horns against which there was an injunction? I mean, that's going to be up to the employer to to show that. But the, the twenty dollars is 
I mean, it's so nominal for, for a man's career. Um, so I think your, the approach is right that you've, that you've outlined Joanna and, and Josh, and that this case I think is going to present some problems, especially now with the way that the emergencies act decision at federal court has, has characterized the protest. That's it. Josh, I can move to my news headline, which, um, you know, I'm a shameless self promoter. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to talk, <laughs> talk about something that, that we did recently. So I, I want to talk about the conference that, that I and Joanna and Josh all just attended, uh, that was put on by our affiliated group, the running Mead society, which for those of you who are listeners who may not know, we have an affiliated group called the running Mead society, which is a nonpartisan group of lawyers, law students, and legal scholars, uh, and they have a conference every year called Law and Freedom. And I've been going since it first started. Uh, Joanna, you used to be the executive director at the Running Meat Society. And I remember some- Founding national director, but who's- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And and I, I loved the conferences that you put on. I think this might have been the best uh, series of speakers that we have had yet. It included a keynote speech from Justice Malcolm Rowe of the Supreme Court of Canada. For those of you listening who might not know which one Justice Rowe is, he is the ginger. He's the redheaded judge <laughs> to put a, a face or head of hair to a name. So Josh and I, we, we were sitting in the front table beside one another during Justice Rowe's speech. And uh, Josh, I'm sure I was annoying you because I kept being like, this is amazing. <laughs> and like turning to you to say things with, you know, every other sentence uh, that came out of Justice Rose's mouth. So he gave this speech. It was called Constitutionalism in a Free and Democratic Society. And I think the part where I lost it the most, where I was like loving it the most was where he went after critical theory, which is a particular bugaboo of mine. Uh, and he went after it, not just in law, uh, after all, critical race theory originated as a legal theory, but he went after critical theory in society at large. And it was amazing. So I'm just going to read one of the parts of his speech where I kept bugging Josh the most. So I said, for those whose views are shaped by postmodernism and critical theory, Fragmentism and moderation by elected officials are not virtues. Rather, they are business as usual within a power structure designed to sustain the discrimination and exploitation that pervade our society. In this view, liberal democracy is not the manifestation of freedom. Rather, it's an instrument of repression. That is a dark view of liberal democracy and Canadian society that I do not share. I'm familiar with Habermans and Marcuse. I've read them. I just don't agree with them. So mm -hmm. if, if I was at a concert, this is where I'd have started like tossing my glow sticks because this is my favorite part of the whole speech. So in addition to Justice Rowe, we had a whole lot of other uh, speakers. We had a, a fireside chat with two uh, Court of Appeal of Ontario judges on Friday night. Justice Peter Lowers of the Court of Appeal of Ontario interviewed Chief Justice Tulloch and he asked Justice Tulloch about his favorite books and about culture. Some highlights for me, me were Justice Tulloch discussing Western civilization and Aristotle, the need for greater civics education, the need for diversity of ideas, which is something that Runnymede Society is all about. Uh, the Runnymede Society is committed to the principles of constitutionalism, the rule of law and fundamental freedoms. And our national director, Chris Kinsinger, has emphasized that we can't take for granted intellectual diversity in the legal profession. So I thought this was a great fireside chat with Justice Tulloch. The event also had a panel on judicial reform, which Joanna, you moderated, but I missed it because I was at the panel on emerging trends in federalism, which is a topic that we at the CCF had a number of cases about, like the recent victory in our intervention with the Impact Assessment Act. And you know, later this week, there's a big federalism case coming out, uh, the result in a Supreme Court case between Quebec and Ottawa over, I mean, essentially the feds trying to hijack and direct provincial bureaucrats. And so the case is about what federalism actually permits. Uh, I think my favorite panel discussion, though, because as I mentioned, I am a self-promoter, was the panel on the Emergencies Act. 
obviously a massive victory for us at the CCF. And the panel was added last minute because, you know, we want our red meat at the conference. We want mm. the we want the wins highlighted when we can. And the panel included the lawyer who represented us in this case, the unstoppable Sujit Chowdhury. And it also included friend of the CCF, Professor Ryan Alford, who had standing with us at the Public Order Emergencies Commission and who has written extensively about emergency powers. And it also featured Professor Michelle Gallant of the University of Manitoba and was run, uh, moderated by Runnymede alumni uh, Mark Mancini. So in that panel, we talked about the decision, which includes some federalism elements, uh, the difference between the Rouleau inquiry and this decision, and about the threshold for invoking the act. But what was cool was we actually learned something new in this panel discussion. And that's that's hard to achieve, given that we were deeply, we were all three of us were deeply invested in the case and worked on it. But we, Sujit recently learned uh, something that he revealed at this panel. He told us that it was our application, the CCF's application for judicial review, uh, when it was given to cabinet and to the incident response group that influenced their decision to revoke the emergency, to revoke the declaration. We had filed, he, he said, you know, we had filed the materials later uh, than another organization, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. And we waited because we wanted to put together some evidence and put together a really, really strong application. And we have now learned that this application for judicial review, once we filed it, it was given to the incident response group of cabinet. And that is why they revoked because of this application. Um, it was given to cabinet. It was considered very weighty and serious. And when cabinet got informed of how serious this application was, they revoked the emergency. And this was revealed for the first time in this uh, in this panel because it was learned recently. And look, this is really important because I think for one thing, we I mean, we didn't know this and that had that had a huge impact on just the facts on the ground. And another thing to mention is a lot of credit has been given to the Senate for the revocation of the emergency. There have been a number of reports that the Senate wasn't going to vote to affirm the declaration. But, you know, it's actually unclear. We don't know how the Senate was going to vote and we don't have an answer to that. It could have it could have gone one way or could have gone the other. And, you know, I am not a Senate lover. Uh, I think it is mostly useless and costly and a bad example of patronage. So this argument that the Senate is the one who saved us is trotted out by these defenders of the Senate. And look, maybe maybe they did have some influence, but it seems like we might be giving them more credit than they deserve because we now know that it was our legal threat that really had an impact and moved cabinet. So this conference, the Runnymede conference, it really pulls together all these incredible speakers and incredible ideas. And if you've never been and you listen to this podcast, it is probably the event for you because if you like listening to this, you're really going to like the conference. Uh, you don't need to be a lawyer. You don't need to be a law student. You can be anyone. And you can meet these judges. You can hear them speak openly or as openly as they can about their thoughts and ideas. And, you know, even if a Supreme Court judge isn't enough to entice you, Joanna, Josh, and I will be, be there <laughs> and you can come in and meet us. What a what an incredible draw. So just briefly, uh, Joanna, what and Josh, what were your favorite parts of the conference? Joanna, I'll start with you. Yeah, well, um, I actually really enjoyed the defamation panel, which was with two generations of Honickmans, Asher Honickman and his father, who's, uh, I take it, one of the leading experts in Canada of defamation law, Lauren Honickman, as well as Adam Goldenberg. And actually one of the panelists on the panel I moderated, Ariel Azarad, later emailed me and said it was one of the best substantive panels she's ever seen at a conference anywhere. And she's like an American Federalist Society uh, person. So I think that's high praise. Um, and then the second thing is, of course, like the Q&A and back and forth. And I, I think I can say this because running meet is not held under Chatham House rules. Um, one of my favorite interactions was when Ian Brody 
um, who is, of course, a former political advisor and academic, um, asked a question to Sajid at the Emergencies Act panel, basically putting to him that um, having all of these fetters on prerogative power that you have in something like the Emergencies Act kind of goes counter to the idea of the prerogative power, which the whole point of it is that the executive can act swiftly. Um, and I spoke to him about that later, and that doesn't actually mean he's opposed to the EA decision or our case, um, but I think it was a broader point. Um, and, you know, Sujit's answer was like, I think we know that like having ex ante uh, controls or fetters on executive exercise of power is a good thing. And in any event, we have the Emergencies Act. Um, but I, what I didn't know, and Sujit told me afterwards, was that he and Brody grew up together, went to school, went to like grade school together, uh, and were actually very good pals. So, um, so yeah, that's the type of interaction you can be part of, and you can ask your own uh, edgy questions at Running Need Conference. Josh, <laughs> what about you? My favorite part was definitely the same as, as Christine's, the, the, this keynote address by Justice Rowe, where he comes out, you know, swinging in favor of liberal democracy and against uh, postmodern ideas that are sort of seeping into the law and are, in my opinion, completely incompatible with the law. Like to me, the law is it's imbued with uh, sort of classical liberalism and uh, those ideas are just totally incompatible with things like the postmodernist idea that there is no objective truth and that everything is just sort of a power struggle. And I also enjoyed the the, the fireside chat on Friday night, uh, particularly where they talked about books. Um, I've got a long list of books that I need to yeah, me too. read now after the conference, but I liked when uh, the Chief Justice of Ontario, Michael Tullock, was asked which books he thinks people should read. And one of the ones he said was one that I would say, and it's the book 1984. I think most of us who are sort of millennial aged or older did read this book. And it's, uh, it's just, it's a, it's a pretty easy read. It's a fun story. Um, and it, it warns against totalitarianism and it, you know, and how quickly you can have all of your rights taken away and lose all of your individual freedom. And I don't think he quite said we're living in 20 in, in 1984 at this point, but uh, it was kind of telling that this is a book he's recommending. He, he did say that he thinks it explains a lot of what we see going on in society. He did say that. Yeah, but he didn't elaborate, unfortunately. Yeah, I love as was that. probably yeah. So that was that was a really interesting point. And like the defamation panel, too, um, I didn't expect that to be the highlight, but it, it was fun because I don't know much about defamation. And I feel like I got practical tips where if somebody comes to us and they have a defamation case, I could, you know, I, I know sort of the first few things to tell them other than, you know, go see either a Hanukkah or a Goldenberg mm -hmm. uh, with your case. Um, so yeah, this this is my fifth year going to the conference. I actually went before I even went to law school because I'm kind of weird and nerdy <laughs> like that. And it was it was at that conference that I decided I want to go to law school because it's it's so interesting what the CCF does and what Runnymede does. And I never knew that, Josh, that you came before you were a law student. That's cool. Pr that's probably enough about that. So maybe let's move to your headline, Joanna. Uh, let's take a break first, and when we come back, I'll tell you all about Doug Ford's mandate letters. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. Okay, so we have a major new Supreme Court ruling um, out last Friday. Uh, the, the court ruled that mandate letters are exempt from freedom of information requests, um, which affirmed the Doug Ford government position. So a bit about the background of this case, a CBC journalist had requested access to the mandate letters that the premier delivered to each of his uh, ministers after forming government in 2018. The letters set out the premier's view on policy priorities for the government's term in office. Uh, cabinet office declined the journalist's request, claiming the letters were exempt under the cabinet records exemption, um, which is in the Ontario Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act. 
and should be emphasized that every province has uh, provisions that are substantially similar to this, the cabinet records exemption. Um, and that protects that records that would reveal the substance of deliberation of cabinet or in committee. Uh, so the CBC appealed this decision of the cabinet office to the privacy commissioner of Ontario, who found that the letters were not exempt and ordered the government to disclose them. That went to judicial review at the divisional court, which found that the privacy commissioner's decision was reasonable. Um, and then it went up to the court of appeal, which also agreed that Doug Ford government should be ordered to disclose their mandate letters. There was a dissent by Justice Lowers, who also attended Runnymede Conference on Friday, by the way, um, and participated in the fireside chat with Justice Tulloch. Uh, and Justice Lowers found that the privacy commissioner's decision uh, eroded the sphere of protection that the cabinet records exemption is intended to provide. Um, so a bit about uh, the decision from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court found that the privacy commissioner didn't appreciate the importance of cabinet confidentiality in effective government and took an unreasonably narrow approach. So they ended up overturning privacy commissioner, divisional court, and the Ontario Court of Appeal. This is somewhat unusual, but of course the Supreme Court is an apex court, so they can do this. Uh, the decision was written by Justice Andromache Karakatsanis, um, who her main uh, role before becoming a judge um, was being a longtime senior civil servant. Um, so I thought it was interesting that she would be the one to write this. And she found that the mandate letters reflects the view of the premier of the importance of certain policy pri priorities and can't be seen as like a settled set of decisions, but mark the initiation of a fluid process of policy form formation within cabinet. Um, and the letters themselves, therefore, could reveal the substance of cabinet deliberation. So how can mandate letters um, reveal uh, cabinet deliberations? It would seem to be kind of a finished outcome. Well, the idea that uh, Justice Carrick Sanis for a majority of the court discusses in the decision is that the letters can reveal the government's priorities ahead of time um, and premature uh, disclosure of policy priorities can have a harmful effect. Um, so without the mandate letters, um, you would just know which priorities the government um, elected to pursue when they pursue them. But if the mandate letters were disclosed, which, by the way, they ended up being in, in this case, in the case of the 2018 mandate letters, they ended up being leaked to journalists anyways. Um, but if you have sort of, I guess, like the full game plan laid out with goals A, B, C and D, um, but in effect, you only see the government pursuing goals A and C or B and D, then you would be able to say, well, why didn't they why didn't they? pursue policy B. Um, and the thought is that this goes to the substance of cabinet uh, deliberation. And so in the decision, uh, the majority of the court said that publicizing this decision-making process before the formulation and public promulgation of a final decision might increase the public pressure that stakeholders put on ministers and give rise to partisan criticism from their political opponents, uh, and this scrutiny could ultimately paralyze the collective decision-making process that cabinet undergoes. Um, but on the other hand, the other hand of this argument is that the purpose of freedom of information legislation is to allow the media um, and by proxy the public access to the information that is required to hold governments accountable. And this decision certainly broadens the scope of what is considered a cabinet record. There's a lot of precedent on the privacy commissioner's side. So CCF, we did not participate in this case, but the Canadian Civil Liberties uh, Association did as an intervener. And their position was that uh, the privacy legislation should exempt from disclosure only documents that would reveal who said what during the deliberative process. The Supreme Court, however, interpreted the quote unquote substance of deliberations of covering a much broader sweep of cabinet discussions, which end only when a final decision on a policy issue, and I suppose when to actually pursue it, is formulated and publicly announced. Now, as for my thoughts, I've been going back and forth. Last night I messaged you guys and said, I think the Supreme Court got it wrong. 
um, because I am certainly sympathetic to the purpose of freedom of information uh, legislation. Even at the CCF, we do a fair amount of FOI requests, and I think this will certainly make that process more difficult. I also think on the whole, uh, Canada in general is a country that errs on the side of too little transparency and too much deference to secrecy. Um, on the other hand, I also understand the importance of like the sort of robust candor, um, unhinged nature of cabinet deliberations. I understand that that's how this branch of government uh, needs to function. So I'm I'm a bit torn. I have concerns uh, about the decision. Um, I think uh, a lot uh, ended up hinging on this idea of like the timing of public announcements. And I'm just not sure how uh, convincing of an argument that is. Um, but Josh, any thoughts about this decision? I know that you, you've come down firmly on one side. Yeah, I have many thoughts on this decision and I can respond to that uh, point you made about the timing. So for context here, I actually spent many, many nights and many weekends uh, earlier in the spring last year working on this for the Crown. So I was actually working, I was articling for the Ministry of Attorney General. And so this was a case that I was assigned to. And uh, I was one of three articling students who were sort of doing this almost 24 seven really at one fun, point. Really fun assisting. case. Oh yeah, it was a great case to be on. It was a, a wonderful experience and uh, kudos to the lawyers who won this, Nadia Lake, uh, Judy Im and Jennifer Boychuk, who are all you know, really smart litigators to work with. So in terms of the timing, I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. So if this is in one sense, to me, this was always a pretty simple case. If you're just doing statutory interpretation and it's just on a couple words, it's, you know, would this reveal the substance of deliberations of cabinet to have these records released? And if it would, the law is, the statute's clear that you cannot release those letters. And if Doug Ford writes mandate letters and he brings them to a cabinet meeting and that's like the first day um, after or the day before the speech from the throne, you know that that is that those letters are the substance of his deliberations and he's the head of cabinet. And you also know that what's in those letters is sort of a starting point uh, for, you know, uh, for deliberations, because these these issues that are outlined in the letters are going to come back before cabinet over and over again, and some of them will come to fruition, and some of them cabinet will you know have a big fight in and decide no, we're not going to go ahead with this policy, um, and so I I think those things need to be kept secret. Like if you look at the history of how responsible government works, you need an executive where they can have those raucous fights where they can be honest to each other in cabinet and have that kept from the public so that they can come out united with one decision. And we saw that a lot during COVID, like we knew that cabinet was having these huge, huge arguments about whether particular COVID policies were the right thing, but they needed to come out and present a unified front or else they wouldn't be able to effectively govern. And so to me, it was always kind of a simple case um, in that regard and that Ontario should should have won. And it's kind of funny because like I, you know, I'm a former journalist. I do like the idea of the public having access to as much information as possible. And our freedom of information system, you know, doesn't function very well. Like we should have a lot more access than we do. But cabinet confidentiality is one of these constitutional principles that is really, really important to, to government um, effectively working. So I'm glad that uh, Justice Lowers put his neck out there and stood up for cabinet uh, confidentiality. And uh, I'm glad that the Supreme Court saw that. And it was really interesting here. So, you know, like you said, you mentioned Joanna, if the IPC finds something's unreasonable, and then the, the divisional court finds the same, and then two out of three judges on the Court of Appeal find the same, you're, you're, you're facing an uphill battle when you get to the SEC, but uh, it's kind of, um, kind of fortuitous for Ontario's government that uh, Justice Kerrick 
uh, worked in government, you know, she was a secretary of the cabinet and she was clerk of the executive council in the Ontario government. So she she's probably one of the one of the leading experts in Canada on things like cabinet confidentiality and Justice Rowe. It's you know the same thing. He was a, a top civil servant uh, and he served as secretary to Newfoundland's cabinet uh, in the 19. 90s so you had two people that are really really understand this issue and that was that was apparent at the hearing like we watched the hearing and uh i almost felt bad for the guy on the other side who's a an excellent lawyer but uh, we kind of knew he was going to lose after watching that hearing so i think that's all i want to say about that uh christine do you have any thoughts on this uh joanna and i are sort of Joanna's torn. I'm on one side. What do you what do you think? I, I mean, my insight is going to be really weak here because I haven't read the case and I haven't read the mandate letters and I definitely did not work on this case. So you guys have a lot more insight into me, into this than me. But I, I'm kind of interested in in this issue that you brought up, Josh, of the these some mandate letters are for public consumption and some are not. And these ones were we're not for public consumption. And I'm kind of curious into the strategic thinking behind Premier Ford when he just, you know, blasted into office, like won the election and wrote these mandate letters. And if he'd given any thought to like, usually these are public and usually, usually uh, they're for public consumption. And I don't want these ones to be because I feel like there's a million ways you can give instruction to cabinet without calling them mandate letters. You can you know, there's all kinds of things you can put into memos to cabinet, I would imagine, and conversations at cabinet without having to take a legal battle all the way to the Supreme Court. So I'm kind of curious if he really had this principled view that I want to be able to write seek like private mandate letters, or if he just didn't, didn't know that this would cause a problem. <laughs> I, I think I can give you some good context on that. Um, so Historically, mandate letters are secret and they're considered, you know, your marching orders from the premier. And uh, it was it was, I believe, Dalton McGinty decided at one point he was going to make his public. But at that point, the mandate letters just started being fake, you know. So it's like once you know they're for public consumption, you don't put your actual policy priorities into those letters. You just like I say, like you said, Christine, you call them something else. So. And then Justin Trudeau saw, I guess, McGinty do that and win following that decision. Uh, Justin Trudeau said, you know, we're going to pass a law that says mandate letters must be public and I'm going to make mine public. But we all know that at that point, it just becomes a PR exercise. So if Doug Ford had lost, uh, you know, what would happen is his his mandate letters would be like over the phone or over some yeah. private email that can't be FOI'd, right? So why destroy the cabinet confidentiality principle that's been with us throughout Westminster government. But do you think he uh, came in just, just for a PR exercise? Do you think he came in with a principled view on that or, or, or what do you think happened? I mean, maybe I can't ask you cause you worked on the case. I mean, I don't know anything. I don't know anything that's not out there publicly about what happened or didn't happen. I'm just, just saying that, you know, he might not have realized that, um, these could be FOI because historically they're they're private and it's only a couple of times in history that they've been made public and when they have it's been as sort of a PR exercise either you know McGinty the former Ontario Premier win or or Justin Trudeau like Justin Trudeau's uh, public showing of mandate letters is probably what what prompted the CBC to FOI these in the first place and I have no idea what what Dort Doug Ford was thinking right so um yeah so it's interesting i'm happy with how the case case turned out um anything more to say on this joanna or christine or should we move on to our bad legal takes let's, let's do the do bad that. legal takes yeah okay um so i'll go first so my bad legal take and there were lots on this particular topic to choose from this week it goes to jennifer koshan who is a university of calgary law professor who teaches feminist theory and uh, human rights. And this is for her response to Alberta Premier Daniel Smith's policy proposals related to children who identify as transgender. So for those of who have been for those of you who've been living under a rock, Smith came out 
last week with a comprehensive list of proposals, including banning sex reassignment surgery for minors, which means that neither mastectomies or nor so-called bottom surgeries will be allowed, uh, banning cross-sex hormones and puberty blocking drugs for kids under 16, banning schools from participating in social transitions by calling kids by new names or pronouns if they're under 16 without parental consent. Although notably, schools will not be allowed to seek parental consent without the student's permission, so kids won't be outed as potentially transgender if they bring this up at school. Also, uh, Smith wants to make instruction about sexuality and gender opt-in, and she's working to ensure that women who are not transgender will have access to sports leagues that don't include transgender women, because transgender women have some obvious biological advantages. And finally, the province is going to work at attracting a physician to do gender affirming surgeries for adults who are transgender and also develop counseling for families who are working through these difficult questions related to gender identity. Now, obviously, there's room for debate here about whether these policies infringe students' rights, either to liberty, which includes the right to make one's own medical choices or potentially equality. And I'm pretty skeptical, you know, that these are uh, that these policies would be discriminatory in any way or impact on equality. Although I do think they're they are potentially open to challenge on on liberty grounds, but that'll depend on the details. Like, for example, if they don't have exceptions for mature minors, they'll be more more open to challenge. In in my view, you know, for example, if you have a fourteen year old who's been persistently experiencing gender dysphoria for many years and they're very mature and capable of weighing the risks of uh, puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones against the risk of not going ahead with those medical treatments, they might have a liberty-based charter argument. We're really not sure at this point. Anyhow, my bad legal take is uh, Koshan's hyperbolic claim that these policies are, quote, state-sanctioned violence. And she's not the only one claiming that these policies are violent or even in some cases genocidal. But as a law professor, I feel like she should choose her words a little more carefully uh, because violence is a word, you know, like genocide that seems to mean less and less each day. And I really struggle to see how this policy could be construed as, quote, violent. So, you know, if parents don't want their kids taught that they can choose their own gender, the gender is a construct, or that certain sexual practices are good. I really don't see how that's violent. And, you know, it's kind of offensive because the vast majority of parents want what's best for their kids. And they should at least be able to decide if certain lessons are, are not age appropriate or not things that they want their kids exposed to. And when it comes to the puberty blockers and the cross-sex hormones, you know, maybe these things do help transgender youth, I'm, I'm not really sure, but there's sort of evidence on both sides of the issue. And one thing that we do need to acknowledge is these are powerful drugs and they have serious side effects and we don't know the long-term impacts of either giving them to kids who identify as transgender or not giving them to kids who identify as transgender. So uh, I really don't see how you can construe uh, trying to avoid potentially irreversible damage to kids as violent. Uh, you know, when it comes to the surgeries, like we don't let kids drink alcohol when they're uh, 16 or 17, you know, they can't buy pot, they can't um, do all kinds of things. And so drawing a line that says they can't have surgeries like mastectomies when they're 16, I, I don't see how that's violent. I, I think it's almost the opposite. So uh, Koshan actually wrote a blog where she explains a little bit more her theory on violence. And she says it's, you know, a type of family violence when uh, parents try to control their kid's identity, which sort of means it's, you know, potentially emotionally abusive. And I, I do think that's a risk here. I think there are some parents who will be emotionally abusive of kids who say, you know, I'm transgender or who even come out as, as gay or lesbian and you know, the, the state needs to be aware of that, but there are processes already in place in schools for dealing with kids who might be victims of abuse. And I, I'm, I'm sure that those will be, that teachers will avail themselves of those if they have those concerns. So 
anyway, it's not violence. And uh, that's why Professor Koshin gets my bad legal take of the week. Christine, on to yours. Okay, so I have a two for one today because they're both from the same person, Nora Loretto, uh, who generally has the worst takes on everything. Nora again? I'm shocked. (laughs) She has the worst takes on everything. So the context for the first bad legal take uh, before I read it is sadly King Charles has been diagnosed with cancer and has taken a step back from royal duties for cancer treatment. So Nora Loretto tweeted about this saying a king and queen dying within two years can't ask for much more from the hand of God. Uh, So this is more like an evil tweet than a legal tweet, like many of Nora's. Uh, And I think that her MO is just to be provocative. Joanna, you said that this is not a legal tweet, but I'm going to explain why I think it is. Because Nora comes to this opinion because she believes in abolishing the monarchy. And look, in our circles, I have an unpopular opinion that I also do not like the monarchy. I do not support a monarchy. Uh, I understand the legal challenges of abolishing a monarchy in Canada. And I've thought about this a lot. I have done some episodes of my television program to have legal scholars debate one another over the benefits and negatives about a monarchy and the process of abolishing a monarchy about how we could become a republic and about whether or not this is a good thing but you know what no one says about how to achieve an end to the monarchy no one says the best way to get there is for the king to die of cancer that does nothing to get what nora wants and it is just evil to celebrate someone getting cancer The royal family is not going to see her tweet celebrating the death of the queen and the cancer diagnosis of the king. But you know who will, Nora? Your friends and family who have been diagnosed with cancer or who have lost family members to cancer. And they will be horrified. Uh, So... Yeah, no, it it might have the opposite effect because support of the monarchy, I mean, God forbid and God save the king, but eventually when William is king, support for the monarchy is going to skyrocket, right? Because he's way more popular than Charles. It's it's actually counter to her goal of abolishing (laughs) the monarchy. It will make people more sympathetic to the monarchy. Um, And I don't want anyone to have cancer. And wishing cancer on anyone, it should go without saying Nora, is evil. So my second Nora tweet that I'm going to read because she's on a roll and so am I. Uh, and I'm I'm going to include this because it's going to segue into your bad legal take, Joanna. Um, it relates to a new policy proposal by Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, where he said if he's the prime minister, he wants a policy that three auto theft convictions should mean three years in prison. Okay. So Nora quote tweets an article about this saying... Imagine jailing people for a victimless crime. Um, And I don't even need to give my explanation about why this is a bad tweet, because there's a wonderful community note that says stealing someone's car does produce a victim, the owner of said car. So I don't even think she can believe what she's saying, but maybe she's doing it for attention. And well, you've got it, Nora. We're paying attention to your dumb and evil views. But yes, of course, stealing a car makes a victim of the theft a victim, Nora. So Joanna, you've got a bad legal take also related to this car theft jail policy, but it's from someone else. So who, who's yours from and what did they say? Yeah. So this announcement of Polyeth really brought out the bad legal takes. So uh, my bad legal take of the week goes to David Mosscrop. He was responding again to this, this new policy that uh, Polyev says a conservative government would end house arrest options uh, for convicted auto thieves uh, on their third offense and introduce a three-year mandatory minimum sentence. Um, and so Mosscrop's uh, response to this on his substack, which we'll link, is uh, he says, the problem with Polyev's approach is that mandatory minimums don't work. And those desperate enough to resort to stealing cars aren't going to be thinking about where they'll serve a prison sentence and they don't expect to be burdened with it. Plus, police have a poor record at stopping auto theft or catching thieves in the first place. And this is where it really gets into the bad take. Desperation, poverty, 
structural marginalization, drive crime, <laughs> but don't seem to feature prominently in conservative discourse on the matter. Okay, now I actually, I'm of course skeptical of mandatory minimums as well, um, but the part that I wanna single out here is that this is driven by desperation, poverty, and structural mar marginalization. No. Uh, car thieves are not exactly desperate poor people. They're extraordinarily well organized. They're technologically savvy. Um, as uh, anyone who's had their car stolen in there uh, um, because they were able to hack through the car security system. And uh, this is increasingly, I mean, this is like an enterprise uh, in many parts of Canada, stealing, shipping and selling stolen cars. It's become fairly low risk way for criminals to make money. Um, and we also know that it often finances other criminal activities uh, ranging from drug trafficking, arms stealing, people smuggling and international terrorism. This is according to Interpol. So I certainly agree. I mean, every day when I open my Nextdoor app, which is the best comedy app that I have, I see some <laughs> other post about somebody in uh, Lawrence Park, where I don't live, by the way, but for some reason I get those posts that another Range Rover was stolen out of my driveway. Won't you save me? Um, but I agree that it would be great to see some more effective policing. Um, for example, at the Port of Montreal, where we know a lot of these stolen cars get shipped out. Uh, and you can watch The Wire season two uh, with the Greek to see how uh, how the port smuggling game goes and how good policing like Mc Detective McNulty would deal with a situation like that. Um, but I also think it has to be said um, that raising the cr the cost of doing these crimes, um, that it does seem like at this point, it's just factored into the amount of the hundreds of thousands of dollars that these car thieves are making, that a six month house arrest, if they're even caught, which uh, we know they usually are not, um, is not a terrible idea. But yes, uh, I car thieves are not driven by desperation, poverty, and structural marginalization. Um, so that's the bad legal take of the week. Uh, Josh, why don't you close us out? So as usual, we hope you'll rate us, review, and subscribe. And just a reminder, you can support our work by subscribing to the Canadian Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel, by following us on Twitter, or by visiting our website, theccf.ca, where you can sign up for our new and improved Freedom Update newsletter from our colleague, Russ. The CCF is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by your donations, so please click that donate button on our website if you can. Thanks for listening.